You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players. And all about strategy, leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. All right, Brennan, we're live on Twitter Spaces today, recording the podcast for the first time. Why Twitter Spaces, Brennan? That's my first question for you. Why are we doing Twitter Spaces? I don't know. <laughs> Trying something different. So, so we're live, right? We're basically this is our ver- this is our sort of medium to do the podcast live, right? So we're recording it like normal. Um, you know, recording it for YouTube with the video, uh, record uh, uploading all pod platforms. So everything that we usually do, but at the same time, we now have our phone set up on Twitter Spaces and are doing this entire thing live. I just thought it'd be a cool experience for people that were maybe around while we were recording. They could listen to the episode early, hear us as we go through our normal episode stuff with all of our notes, see if we make mistakes, et cetera, et cetera. It just seems like there's no reason to not be doing it. Um, maybe at the end of this week, we'll look at like, you know, YouTube and podcast conversions and see if it like negatively affects it or if people enjoyed it, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, just try it out. See if it, see if it works. All right. Well, we, we can't have an argument mid podcast then because how can I edit it out if everyone's listening to it on <laughs> Twitter spaces? No, big hello to everyone on Twitter spaces. Thanks for joining us, Brendan. This is episode 86 of Arsenal Pass. And Brendan, you want to talk today about how to win a pro quest. Have you won a pro quest before, Brendan? So I haven't won a, <laughs> uh, I top eight of pro quests, but back when Road to Nationals were the premier competitive event, I won five in a row. I actually have, haven't, pl- I haven't played a pro quest season. I played I like just one pro on. quest. I know you haven't played yeah, any yeah. pro quests. <laughs> I think yeah, you've yeah. played two or three max. Yes. But when I played Road to Nationals, they were definitely the equivalents of pro quests. Those didn't exist yet. So, uh, yeah, I do have some accolades in the pro quest in, in the pro esque tournament. <laughs> Hey, well, you won a PTI event not too long ago, so I'm sure you can give some insight based on based on that. So we are going to talk about that today on episode 86 of Arsenal Pass. As I say, stitching up Brendan already, one of my favorite things to do. I want to ask you, actually I already asked you, how was your week in Flesh and Blood? You said you haven't really been playing Flesh and Blood. What Have you been doing anything else? Have you been playing any other games? Marvel Snap, maybe? Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, a little bit of Marvel Snap. Yeah, I bet. Just hit infinite by the end of the month which or whatever by the end of the season which it's honestly a bit of grind um but you know i want that card back and i'm just motivated by in-game in-game items like that i guess uh yeah outside of that i've been exercising a lot because preparing for the marathon so i stepped up uh in the past two weeks i stepped up from about a three mile run every day to now six to ten miles every single day uh maybe take two days off it depends how my body's feeling so that that's pretty intense to be honest but i I have to do that because i don't really have a lot of time to prepare uh for said marathon and then yeah like we talked about the patreon podcast yesterday uh i watched a movie in theaters which is really unusual for me i saw glass onion it was great. Highly recommend it. What about you, Hayden? I've actually been playing some Flesh and Blood. I've been attending a couple of armories. Uh, it's been really cool. It's been really enjoyable to get back and play some armories. I was looking at my, I think I already said this anecdote maybe, but I was looking at my fab TCG, you know, like recent history page before sort of after Worlds. And it was like, I could see the last two PTs on my first page. I just haven't hadn't had the opportunity to play any armories. It's just been life and, and getting ready for events. So, um, December, November, December, bit of downtime, traditional flesh and blood off season, as we can now call it. Getting out to play some armories, which is um has been awesome. So went to a CC armory on Monday night, played a bit of dash, which I'll talk about 
uh, later in the pod once we talk about sort of approaching ProQuest Season 3 and, and this meta and what we're expecting stuff to look like because we did also have, there was a PTI event on Sunday. I uh, guess we're kind of rolling a bit into the news now, but there's a PTI event and Battle Hard in Hong Kong that took place over the weekend. Uh, both won by Dash. So Battle Hard and Blitz and PTI event, uh, which is, is, is pretty cool. You know, dashes. There's some new cards, some new toys to play with, uh, which we did talk no about. Yeah, which we did talk about in the uh, the podcast last week. No, week the first week. So two weeks ago, we we broke down over the last two weeks our dynasty sort of review, I guess, or how we think it's going to impact constructed. And we talked a lot about dash in that first part of it, part one. I think it's episode eighty four. Uh, and obviously, we're already seeing that come to the forefront with uh, dash really putting on display. Also, one of course the the battle hardened. Uh, at the SCG Battle Hardened a couple of weeks ago as well, the first week of, of Dynasty release. So awesome to see. And then we've got Singapore this coming weekend, which is coming up. So more flesh and blood on the way. And then I think I want to say, is that is that it for the year? Because then January is ProQuest Season 3, which is coming up. And then we've got Battle Hardened Leeds and uh, Belgium, I think it's Antwerp as well, coming up. So people get some downtime, go play some armories like I'm doing. You can, you know, go get some, I want to do some drafts. Actually. I really want to revisit December, trying to get some groups together and do some things like Monarch draft, uh, welcome okay, to Wraith okay. draft, probably not arcane yeah. rising draft. <laughs> uh, I thought you were like, damn, I just really miss uprising drafts. I was like, mm. maybe I do. <laughs> it's not, it's not been that long yet. I mean, maybe you do. You, uh, you did have a pretty good record at world, the world championships. So uh, it helps being only one Icelander in a pod. So mm. <laughs> otherwise in the news, We've actually, as we were recording, Brendan, I just had a message in a couple of hours, our last game of the Blitz Beatdown series, this gauntlet series that we're doing for Legend Story Studios up on fabtcg.com is going up. Uh, now all four games will be up. There's deck techs with the decks we played. First two Blitz games are without Legendaries and Fables and the deck techs represent that. And then the games that have gone up this week, they, uh, I want to say it's Dash versus Prism and what else did we play? I played Arachne in one of the games. I think that's the game going up today. And you were playing yeah, Rhino. Reinar. Yeah, 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 yeah. Brendan got on the Rhino train. So uh, those those games are up now. Although if you're listening live on Twitter Spaces, I think the last game is going up in a couple of hours with Dick Ticks. Yeah. Did you enjoy playing Blitz? Did you enjoy playing, aside from our technical difficulties, did you enjoy playing some Blitz and trying out some of these new cards? Because we, we played with a lot of new cards over these four games. I did. Um, so I think from a ca- like from a casual standpoint, and those games were you know, a bit more on the casual side because we got to just build new decks from Dynasty cards, experiment with with the new cards and new archetypes. I had a lot of fun. I think Blitz is a great way to sort of, I don't know, dip your toes in a Dynasty, right? You got to mess around with a Brute, a Wizard, a Ninja, and an Illusionist and see all the sweet new things that I could <laughs> I could do with some of the cards. You know, my Icelander deck probably didn't look too much different than it did before. And my Prism deck, I think that some of the Dynasty cards I put in there were actively just worse. But outside of that, like, you know, it was fun. Like, it was a it was a good introduction to Dynasty for me, and I, I did enjoy it. I think through the video series, I... You know, I got to play some heroes I wouldn't usually play, to be honest. Yeah, I'd love to hear what people are thinking so far of Dynasty as a whole as a set. You know, if you're on YouTube, actually, even if you're on the Twitter spaces, like drop us a comment and let, let us know what you're thinking about the set so far. I've been really enjoying. I think the, the kind of main takeaway so far for people is that it's helped a lot of classes come come up. Maybe not the main the main four heroes, you know, with Ultim, Fi, Icelander, Briar. Maybe, you know, they've gotten the least, you would say, or you could say. But a lot of these other things, you know, Dash, we just talked about, Azalea, um, you know, you've got Arachne as, as a new hero. There's a lot of things that are new and feel competitive. So I think we're mm-hmm. going to see it flesh out as we head towards the ProQuest season. Will 
you know, is Arachne really real? Is it is it viable? Are these upgrades to Azalea enough to make it tier two, sort of tier one point five? Or you know, we're going to see the old favorites once people start. You know, they get off all the new toys and they start going back to maybe trying to just understand what the best of the best is. Are we just going to see these old heroes still stand on top? It's going to be really interesting. Like so far, I think you can already say Dash is going to be competitive. Like there's no way you're saying that's just a, a fad for the first sort of four weeks of Dynasty. Like it's powerful. But it gets fatigued now. Well, we'll, we can, we we'll, can break, that we'll break like. into that eventually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so what you mentioned there too, you're like, oh, the the top you know four heroes didn't really get as much support. Best case scenario, to be honest, like that that's exactly what we needed. Um, you know, letting some of these other heroes that have maybe not had their time in the spotlight get some more tools to work with. I think that's great, right? I don't know if it was 100 percent intentional. I think it was a, a bit of serendipity there that the top meta decks maybe didn't get as as many upgrades. But um, I think it's great because I look back at a set like Everfest where you know the freaking Runeblade cards and the Illusionist cards, like the the classes that were already good got the powerful cards. So I I think that this is uh, a better scenario. Yeah. With that said, Brennan, should we jump into a command quick question this week before we get into the main topic of the pod? Yeah. What do you have for us? Uh, great question. Uh, I do have a command quick question. I just need to flick to it. All right. We had a question from Fancy from the Arsenal Pass Patreon Discord asking, Brendan sometimes alludes to people learning how to play against Dorinthia. This is actually an older question, but I thought it's like super relevant right now. Uh, making hero fundamentally worse. How do you play against Dorinthia? Are there other heroes that you think are essentially a knowledge check in this way? And once you figure out how you correctly play into it, get much less scary. I think this question is really relevant because Dorinthia, Brennan, just got a ton of, well, you know, a reasonable amount of upgrades from this new set. There's a lot of different ways you can build it, but there's also just some, some cards that are really interesting. Puncture is one that comes to mind. But yeah, back to this question. How do you play against Dorinthia, Brendan? And is there any other heroes like this that are a, a knowledge check? I want to start off by addressing the elephant in the room, is, and that's that the, that quote, um, verbatim quote, I would assume of me. Definitely is. Uh, it says that I, you know, accuses me of using the word fundamentally. So first off, doesn't sound like me at all. But um, yeah, there, there's actually a lot of heroes that are like that. I think Dorinthia is just sort of the <clears throat> the big bully from the old days, right? From Welcome to Wraith, that was the deck that if you didn't know what you were doing, you would be heavily punished. And we started to, it felt like as we got, you know, that, that meta matured a bit more. People also put more defense reactions in their deck. But uh, it felt like that deck was much more tame. Where in the beginning, uh, like I remember the first couple months of welcome to wraith constructed dorinthia was like the freaking powerhouse nothing could, this was i was in the u.s by the way so very small small meta there but like dorinthia is a freaking powerhouse in cc nothing could go close etc 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 and that lasted for like a month or two and then it was like there was like this fatigue bravo list that came out and uh, so on and so forth decks equalized yeah decks equalized a bit and dorinthia turned out it was like it was a good deck but it wasn't overpowered um but yeah i think it's a Dorinthia definitely is a deck where if you don't know what you're doing because of the way Dawnblade works and you know some of the card suite does it's like there is this sort of snowball advantage so it's like as soon as you make one mistake it's it feels like you pay for that for the entire game um, and you have to play you know prioritize and play your defense reactions in the correct way in order to play around that um, another hero <laughs> that I think is a great example of that is actually Kano like Kano is probably even more punishing if you don't know what that deck is trying to do um especially when it comes to like you know when should i pitch when should i pitch for arcane barrier um when should i use my spell void right like popping your spell void on like an early lessons in lava absolutely not correct like 99 percent of the time um you know how how safe am i overextending into the kano right now how likely are they to have it like i think that kano is a deck that almost is 
somewhat predicated on punishing its opponents based on their lack of knowledge of how the deck works. Yep. People just clicking those timers where 10 minutes and Brennan's already talked about the strength of Kano. So that's a, that's a tick mark for your, uh, <laughs> the, the Taylor Morrow drinking game, as I like to call it. Um, so Fancy was asking about like how you play against, I completely agree about the Dorinthia piece, by the way, right? Like I remember seeing all these like 50 and 0, my local armory Dorinthia deck, like mm-hmm. when we, Wakad Wraith first came out, because it was just, people were just running over people. And a big part of that is the decision trees you go down when you play against Dorinthia, you get the biggest edge against that by knowing what your opponent can do in any given situation. So, you know, they pitch a, a blue player warrior's valor. Now they're down to three cards, two cards in hand, maybe one card in arsenal, and they come in with their Dawnblade. What are the options they can have here? You know, there's, there's so many things. And as sets of release, we've had things like Twinning Blade, which have just increased those options. You've had Spoils of War to give Natural Go again. It's cheaper than Driving Blade. You've had all these options that Dorinthia's kind of expanded upon. So it is, a, it is a hero that's difficult to play against. And I think we saw this national season sort of ProQuest PT2 national season. We saw some people doing really well with Dorinthia because it's strong, first of all. Like Dorinthia is not, it's not a um a Bolton slash Livia tier hero, I think. Like Dorinthia was powerful, struggled into prison, but you know, against other aggro decks, especially once Glistening Steel Blade was printed, like that was a really powerful thing you could do. It still is now. Uh but yeah, there is definitely a bit of a knowledge check there, like you talk about. So how you play into it, well, you need to really know what what your opponent can or could do. So, you know, a lot of <laughs> graveyard checking is pretty relevant. You'll see people do that against Dorinthia to see what attack reactions have already been played. You know, am I playing around a steel blade? Um, singing steel blade. Like that's one of the hardest cards to to play around. Is it worth playing around in this situation? Am I playing around an iron song response? Am I playing around double alpha blood, you know, alpha blood and say uh, stroke of foresight? Like what do you, you need to work out the cards you're playing around. And there's also different Dorinthia builds. We've seen Dorinthia builds be more focused on attack action, uh, attack actions, not attack, non-attack actions rather, versus attack reactions and vice versa and a bit of a sort of a melding of both. So I think knowledge of what your opponent's trying to do, the cards they could be playing and just getting reps in is, is kind of the best way because often it's correct to just not block Dawnblade on the first attack. Like that is often a, a very correct thing. You know, they play Spoils of War, come in for five. Often the correct decision is don't block because now on their second attack they've used an extra resource the options they have to respond to your defense on the second attack is limited so using your life total is a bit of a resource for that Mm -hmm. and when we talk about the hero getting worse as the meta sort of matures and uh realizes that dorinthia is going to be going to be a player in that meta it's 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 basically just people making less mistakes against the deck that's a deck that if if your opponent makes a mistake against you uh the the advantage bar that you get from that can be can be quite drastic where with other heroes sometimes it's i don't know if it's less but it's maybe a bit less on the nose right it's uh, a bit more subtle with dorinthia it's like boom there's a counter on dawn blade and like holy crap Noble. now i'm facing down yeah now i'm facing down a you know a potential another singing steel blade or there's the bolters are still there and there could be another another freaking counter or something like that so it, it just when we say like Dorinthia gets worse into these matters, we just means that, you know, naturally your opponents should start to make less mistakes as to become more accustomed to the deck collectively. I think, yeah, I partially agree with that. I think the other part is you will see people start to respond with playing more defense reactions in the deck if something like Dorinthia is big in the meta, you know, that is, that is an option. It's like you talked about Cannon before. It's like people packing Nell Rune. It's like people playing defense reactions. The problem is, is that, you need to know how to use those defense reactions, how you want to hold cards in Arsenal and when you actually want to use your defense reactions versus just taking damage and and allowing maybe even a counter to get on something. There's there's a lot of decision trees, which I really like. I really like playing into Dorinthia. I hate playing the hero. 
definitely one of my least favorite heroes to play, but I really enjoy yeah. playing into the hero for that reason. Uh, the other thing I wanted to just respond to Fancy asked about are the knowledge checks. I think Bolton is, you know, if you don't understand how the Bolton combo works, mm. that is, like you say, that is a knowledge check. You can just get blown out immediately, even if you could stop the combo, if you don't know how to with your the way you defend on the first few attacks, that could that could see you getting blown out. Um, you talked about Kano already. I, I Katsu. Think, yeah, Katsu can be with like where you should block for mask momentum triggers and for like Mugenshi lines and things like that. Um, I think Ranger can be to an extent as well, particularly Lexi, I think we saw in the early days. You know, how do you actually defend against on-hit effects like Chilling Ice Vein and, uh, you know, Frostbolt, things like Frostbolt, not Frostbolt. I'm so bad with uh, with the, the Ice Ranger card names. The Ice Ranger. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I don't know which one you're trying to fish for in the ether there. The one that gives but, you a, the one that gives you a, a frostbite. Yeah. So the uh, the ice ranger card that gives you a frostbite. Oh, sorry. I thought you knew the answer. and You're about to tell me. <laughs> okay. Anyway, no, it's not coming to yeah. It's not anyway, coming that, that's 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 another one of those kind of checks. I think so. Um, yeah. Great question from Fancy there. I think we're gonna see uh, just to go back on Dorinthia, I think Dorinthia is strong i think it's a, a viable option for the upcoming progress season and i think we've already seen it show up a, a little bit i want to say maybe we've seen one in these pci events um a lot of options now glistening steel blade is a very real card and there's a lot of different ways you can build the deck now i'm interested to see if anyone comes up with the kind of dual wielding during theory at all i tried it in blitz it seems reasonable i think maybe i should have been playing attack actions in my deck to take advantage of that but yeah there's a there's a lot of different ways now you can build during hero is definitely yeah, not bad <laughs> you you let me down there. I really wanted to take my bingo card for Unified Decree, but uh, you went the you went the Sabres route. I know, sorry, I apologize. All right, All right. Yep, so if you do want to submit a question to the Commander Cookout, potentially get a read-up on the pod, there's, of course, the uh, Arsenal Pass Discord, or you can go ahead and shoot that. Shoot an email to us at arsenalpassfab at gmail.com. All right, let's go ahead and head into the main topic of the pod, how to win ProQuest, something that, uh, you know, as Hayden pointed out, I've never done. Now, I mean, Hayden and I both have had success in sort of ProQuest S. It's basically the re- the regional tournament circuit, right? The the regional tournaments that are the most competitive. It used to be Road to Nationals. At one point, to be honest, it was Skirmish, uh, but now they're mostly referred to as ProQuest, right? And they probably will be in perpetuity. So let's just start off real quick. A lot of people listening probably know what ProQuest is, but in case you don't, ProQuests are the events where you get invites to the Pro Tour. That's the main thing, right? And we have one upcoming here in the from the 14th to 29th of January, 2023. Um, and that would give you potentially an invite to Pro Tour number three. There is a random gold job foil card to first place. Uh, that's where that PTI goes as well. And then First through eighth place, get some get some sleeves and like a limited edition Soraya, and then there's like some resource tokens or something like that, right? So you're trying to win basically, um, and this is basically this is your path to become a quote unquote professional player in Flesh and Blood, or at least the most clear path. There's also things like XP, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So PTIs, etc. Because just want to make the distinction that winning a ProQuest doesn't give you a PTI; it gives you an invite to that Pro Tour. So Pro Tour. yeah, ProQuest season three is to qualify you for the first pro tour of 2023 where that is couldn't tell you apparently it's in north america but uh mm. we'll, we'll find out soon i assume before the progress season starts we will definitely have confirmed date and location but yeah just want to make that clear that like a, a pci is these pci events it's the battle hardens it's uh topping a certain number at a pro tour so generally top 32 gets your pti and those can be used redeemed for anything but of course for a progress season it's a feeder event directly for that progress you can't bank them yeah 
I wonder if they're ever going to change the, because <laughs> like it's pro tour in, yeah. Cause it does get a little confusing, right? You have like the, the big boy PTIs that you can like, you know, hold on forever and like sell them. And then there's like these other ones are for specific events, but I digress. Um, yeah. Like we said, they're, they're local and regional tournaments, right? They're going to be held at your local game store. So if you want to figure out where those are um, and how to attend, just go to the event locator on fabtcg.com. Um, and just a little info about why the PTI is important. Like Hayden said, this gives you access to pro tour number three and gets you on this sort of pro circuit. Right. Um, so let's go into step one. Well, I just want to say this progress isn't is class constructed by the way. Yep. It is class constructed, thank God. <laughs> I will miss Uprising Draft, but uh, yeah, it is a class constructed. So my step one for me is understanding the meta. And I think that understanding the meta is a critical component to winning pretty much any fab tournament above an armory and debatably even kind of important for winning armories. But uh, yeah, I think that you start with identifying the macro, right? Do I expect most players to be on aggro, control, or mid-range? Like, what is the general feel? Like, sometimes, and this has sort of been what a lot of the class-constructed metas have have looked like in Flesh and Blood, especially post-Monarch and pre-Prism ban, um, they were just heavily aggro-dominated, right? So you need, you couldn't, it was hard to find an excuse to play a mid-range deck because the aggro decks were so linear, so aggressive, and your sort of, your ability to set up and try to outvalue the opponent was usually eclipsed by just raw damage. So often you, f you saw these two polar sides of the meta, right? Where you saw the hyper-aggressive decks and then you saw the hyper-control decks, the things like the old hymns or the fatigue prisms, et cetera, et cetera. So identifying sort of the macro archetypes that are being played. And then of course, we start to narrow that down. So where I love to start is just what is the narrative for the current quote-unquote best deck? And if you listen to the beginning of this pod, it, it kind of sounds like it's Dash, right? So if I'm going into my first pro quest, I... And bringing a deck that's going to be prepared for dash right if i could also be playing dash and there's definitely an argument to playing the best deck but i think it's important to pay attention to whether it's twitter discord or just your your at your local armory like what do people think is like overpowered what are they complaining about because <laughs> that's what you should that's what you should really be trying to beat right um and that's what you should expect especially on something like the first uh the first tournament of the pro quest season yeah so i'm sorry go ahead aiden you're good. I was just going to say, yeah, in terms of neutral met narrative and understanding the meta, it's going to change locally as well. I think depending on your region, you talked about this being the regional sort of circuit of flesh and blood, which it is. And, you know, generally if you're playing ProQuest, you're probably playing it within a, a certain radius. You know, it could be, I know a lot of people will go, I'll commit to everything that's on a four hour drive of my house, for instance, and then they might play three sort of ProQuest because of that. And you're probably going to have a lot of players within that vicinity doing the same thing. So you're going to see the same players uh, most weeks and you're going to see similar metas and you're going to see that sh local shift be fairly local, I'd say. It will often take the form of, like you say, the kind of narratives you're talking about. So if everyone in the sort of flesh and blood community is talking about Dash being the deck right now, you know, people are forgetting about Icelander, whatever it is. What does that mean for your meta? Are you actually hearing different things at a local level? You know, it's like, okay, my store just has a lot of like, Fi, Fi guys, you know, Fi guys, girls, people that play Fi. What does that mean for you? So I, I do think there's a narrative there, but then it's also, like you say, that the macro side of it is like starts to come in and narrow and hope I haven't taken away from what you were about to say, but. Uh, I mean, Fi guys just sounds like a fast food, fast food restaurant. But, That's a flesh and blood. Um, it's, in the, it's in the world of Wraith. You hit the Fi guys yeah. and you get yourself some, you know, some Fi's and a, I don't know. Fi's and a. Frozen Icelander drink, I don't know. Yeah. So yeah, as we drill down to that, uh, you end up with like, what is the sort of hero representation 
look like? What do I expect, right? And this is pretty important. So if we look back at the Pro Tour 2 meta, um, Icelander was potentially like a, a pretty good pick, right? It had a the Icelanders at the time thought it had a good matchup into Briar and a pretty great matchup into Oldham. But Prism was still around and it had a straight up auto loss to Prism. The argument would be is that Prism was not a very viable deck in Pro Tour number two because of the perceived bad matchup against Briar. Nevertheless, we saw what we've seen a million times and that's that people freaking bring Prism when they can bring Prism and a bunch showed up. So maybe Icelander wasn't the best pick even though it was a fundamentally powerful deck because there was this looming matchup of a quote unquote auto loss that was going to be a significant part of the meta. So in my opinion, I would argue that Icelander was probably not the best pick for Pro Tour number two, even though the deck was very, very powerful. And sort of lastly, when it comes to understanding the meta, I want to circle back up to something we touched on really quickly, which is, should you just be playing the best deck? Well, <laughs> I find myself defaulting, <laughs> defaulting to the best tech pretty often. Um, and I think that I'm, I'm able to do that because I, I often have enough time and resources to be practiced on most of the, most of the meta decks, right? And often the best deck has that has that sort of reputation and narrative for a reason right especially if you see it performing week to week to week and you, it's an absolutely legitimate strategy to play that deck and even if you're playing mirrors and you don't feel like you have too much of an edge you can you can totally take down a tournament with it and it can occasionally be the path of least resistance than trying to you know break the meta wide open with something new a little anecdote that i have from this and hayden of course shares and this is pro tour number two hayden and i while i think we're kind of known for just playing the best deck and playing meta decks it's not what we actually like to do we actually we always are looking to find sort of um the dis like a disruptive deck right like a deck that's surprising that people aren't suspecting that we can catch people off guard exploit people's sort of limited sideboards and have game plans that are not sort of public knowledge at that point but in pro tour number two we played briar a and although our list was a, a bit different, it was a pretty standard Briar list, and we played it into the Briar meta. And this came down to is like through all of our testing, through all of our hard work, we just couldn't get away from Briar, and we and we we decided that although that was the deck that was being targeted by all the other players, that was a deck that was being played by the other players that weren't targeting it, and we couldn't get that much of an edge, it still just gave us the best chance of winning the tournament. Yeah, the this idea of the best tech. I think when you talk about that, you're talking about public perception, right? Like, what is the, mm -hmm. back to that narrative yeah. thing, what is the narrative of the best deck? And in new metas, so ProQuest Season 3 is going to be interesting because it's going to be a fairly fresh meta. And this, I think we're going to see the the narrative of the best deck develop over the three weeks of, of the season itself. I think heading into week one, there'll be, there'll be the decks to beat. There'll be the ones that people are talking about. <clears throat> we're a month out now, so, you know, it could be Dash, could be Icelander, could be Five could be any of these decks but you you'll definitely have some information heading to at least week one the interesting thing that that happens is like i say if you're going to a progress in week one week two week three you're going to have your more micro meta you know your local meta but there is going to be some things that happen over the top and because of things like talishar because of community um you know discourse things are starting to evolve a little bit quicker and i wouldn't be surprised to see request season three have at least some evolutionary jumps week to week on the meta you see you know you go week one it's like 30% of people play Dash, maybe as an example, and people have got the, the deck to beat it. You know, I, I, I don't know exactly 
maybe Icelander, right? Maybe Icelander is really good until people realize how good Icelander still is. And then it's like, okay, next week we shift over and it's like 5 to 10% have shifted off Dash and have gone to another aggro deck or 5% have just gone to now what may be the best deck in the form of Icelander. So I think we'll see this shift. And one thing I, I did want to sort of give something that I've done a lot in the past, I know um, some others in, in testing groups have been a part of, are a big fan of this as well, is trying to break down what the meta shifts look like and these narratives look like in terms of the expected metagame percentage. So you can do this for a macro level. It's it's a lot harder to do something like this for a calling, but to do this for like a, a pro tour where you can be a bit more short of like generally people playing Eto decks or landing on certain things. You can also do this for your ProQuest meta where you know a bit more information, like solid information about what people will play. But you can basically, you can do this on pen and paper, you can do this on Excel, however you want to do it. You can go and start to give percentage points to what you think people are going to shop within the meta. You know, you can sign Dash 30%, Icelander 20%, whatever you think it's going to be. And then based on the decks that you know that you play, you can actually go and give yourself a bit of a, you know, a bit of a, a, a win percentage, so to speak, like how confident you are into these. You can do this with numerical, you can do this with sort of uh, written feelings. I feel good at this matchup. I feel only okay in this matchup, whatever it is. And then you can go and actually weight the metagame based on, on what you know. So, you know, maybe I've got a deck that's good into Dash and Icelander, but is like a dog to fire. Maybe that's a great week one pick. All of a sudden fire rises in week two. And I know from a, you know, just looking at my percentage points I expect people to take and what I know this matchup's like, maybe now this deck that's bad to fire is not a good choice. I, I really recommend like, if you just have a bit of time, just like even with a pen and paper, just sitting down and just writing this out, it helps you through, think through the thought process, I think, and will give you some solid sort of answers to why you should or shouldn't play a deck because a lot of people will go, well, I, I think I should play this deck because it's maybe the best deck. Oh, I think it's the best choice. But often when I say like, why is it the best choice? People can't articulate why that is. They just go, well, I thought people would play this deck. But then what about the other two or three decks that are near the top? Oh yeah, I didn't really think about those. You know, they're an okay matchup. But maybe there's another deck that you play. Maybe you play Viserai or something and you have a good matchup into two of those three and that could have been a better option. Like, I think you can just give yourself a bit more of a, it just gives you an edge. It just gives you this understanding and you can actually put some some data and thought behind it a bit more. <clears throat> yeah, with ProQuest season being a multi-week sort of tournament set you should absolutely expect the meta to be dynamic and be switching week to week and legend story studios will often publish articles um kind of detailing the meta and how it's shifting and it's a great resource um but obviously look at it through the lens of your local meta because your local metal your local meta might behave atypically compared to sort of the macro meta across the world. And I want to cap off the understanding the meta section <laughs> by saying that while it's important to understand the meta, it's arguably more important that you should just play whatever hero you're comfortable on, especially in the current class constructed meta, from what I understand, right? And even if we want to rewind, rewind pre-Dynasty, while Icelander and you know Oldham, some of these decks were very powerful, Briar, it felt like a meta where you could get away with playing the deck that you were good at, right? The deck that you were comfortable with. We saw a lot of specialists see a lot of success, and I do believe that Flesh and Blood is still in that same place. Um, it likely will always be in that place unless there is something that is so fundamentally broken, like uh, like a Starvo or something that just shuts down your your sort of pet deck's ability to play the game, right? Just from a, a fundamental <laughs> basis. Get that word in there. Yeah, no... <laughs> I, I, I definitely don't disagree. I think it's a good point. And we, we saw that, right? We saw two Reinars make top eight at the calling in, in San Jose and, and be won by Chan Lato playing Reinar, which is not something that people would have had on their, their scorecard, I'm sure, you know, on their brackets. But 
one thing that Chandler did particularly well, right, winning that event is that, yes, he played the, the hero that he's very, very familiar with, but Chandler also understood the metagame and made deck, you know, deck choice, card choice decisions based on that, had a Reinar deck that was tuned to that meta, didn't just pick up the same Reinar list that they had been playing for six months or whatever and just run with it. They still understood the meta, what they expected to play against, had the game plans and had the, the tweaked deck to go into that metagame. Yeah. And so I'm just going to quickly run through an example of the deck that I would plan to play the first week of ProQuest, which is Kano, right? Rock Rhino. So, oh. Yeah, Rock Rhino. Yeah, close. <laughs> you almost took the words out of my mouth there. Yeah, so Kano, great great into some metas and really painful into others. Kano's a powerful deck, but it feels like the meta itself can, can abuse Kano, right? It's less Kano abusing the meta, and I feel like the meta is really abusing Kano, right? How much how much spell void are we dealing with? How fast are the aggro decks? Um, and can I beat all these freaking Oasis or Spites or something like that? Um, I would ask myself, do I expect my opponents to be prepared for my deck and well-practiced against it? In Kano's case, absolutely not. So, tick, that's a good box for me. Um, even, if under, if, even if people understand their game plans into Kano, how likely are they to have hate or tech cards in their sideboard for them? Pretty much zero, right? Because the representation is so low and the narrative around the deck is pretty negative, I would say a good example of this is in Pro Tour 1. There was like a lot of lack... People ended up cutting Arcane Barrier and Spellvoid because the decks, I guess the top three decks were kind of so powerful, right? Like it felt like everything was a bit razor thin, so you had to get an edge wherever you could. And it was it was an almost easy choice to be like, yeah, I don't really need that Spellvoid. There's a, like, and even if you looked at the statistics at the end, I know quite a few Kanos, two Kanos made top eight, had a great conversion, but the amount of Kanos actually showed up, it might have been actually correct uh, to cut the spell void, but this is something that we really considered potentially bringing that deck to the tournament. It's like, okay, let's look at all the past lists from these these previous this previous data set of tournaments that people have been playing where they've registered lists. How much spell void are they playing? And it was almost none, right? How much how much arcane barrier? Like maybe one. Except for, of course, Tark Patel's list on Channel Fireball, which always has uh, got Max Kano hate. <laughs> um, I would ask myself, how many people do I expect to be playing heroes that are actively like really really bad matchups for me so an example of this in this meta would be boost dash right like boost dash just maybe too fast for me uh i don't want to be rolling the dice against that deck every time and also icelander right a good icelander player can drag me into sort of deep water in the late game and it's just a really really tough matchup and i expect the icelander players in my local meta to be very well practiced and have a good game plan to me so that would be maybe i shouldn't be playing this deck and then Calling back to our previous point, and like we said, our most important play point, maybe I should just play Kano regardless because it's cool and I practiced a lot. Yeah, and I feel comfortable on it, right? And I think that that's a perfectly legitimate strategy uh, for a deck to bring to the ProQuest season. One thing that we didn't touch on just to end this out is that we didn't touch on the sort of newness or the unknown. The other thing I think you can potentially gain an advantage for ProQuest Season 3, and maybe going to the next point, Brendan, but is playing something that isn't as well known there's a lot of new things you could do we talked about Dorinthia early earlier maybe you could be playing saber dagger Dorinthia, right you know there's 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 new things you could be doing as well yeah definitely so after you've done all this sort of uh i don't know theorizing on the matter Prep right work. you gotta pick a yeah you gotta you gotta pick a deck um I would say, and we've said it already, your deck can and likely will change throughout the ProQuest season. So don't sweat it if you're not on the most broken deck ever conceived 
your first PQ. It's fine, right? Like you can bring, I brought Bravo to like a freaking PT event, a PTI event. It happens, you know, you, you live and you learn, you look at the data and you pick good heroes, you don't play heroes over print and welcome to Wraith. So, and then hey. to reiterate on that, your uh, experience of reps supersede all of those metagames anyway. So yeah, don't, don't sweat it too much on the first PQ. PQ. You gotta let, you gotta let the meta sort of figure itself out. The data will be posted and you'll have so much more to work with on your second, third, fourth tournament. Do you saying something, Hayden? I heard, I heard a hey in the back. Oh, I was just, you know, don't talk about my welcome to Wraith heroes like that. Don't play a hero from Mark Henry. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, I will say that I think, you know, for a lot of people, the situation might be that you, you won't change hero for a number of reasons. You know, uh, you might not have access to the cards to do so. You might have, this is the deck that you have, the hero that you play. Maybe you, you don't want to, you know, this is, you want to play this hero. You want to win. You want to do well with this hero. And all of those things are fine. I think it's still about understanding week to week shifts and trying to do what you can for those. So, you know, you might find after week one, your hero is not badly positioned, but also not fantastically positioned. But how can you potentially go and look at the list you played and look at maybe, maybe it's cyborg packages. Maybe you look at a slightly different plan B or, you know, subset of game plans for that. Maybe you even like, it's like, I just change up my blues to some more non-attack actions because Bolton's really powerful in my meta. I, I don't know. There's, there's things you can definitely do between weeks one to two, weeks two to three when it comes to picking your deck. And it can just be small tweaks and things like that as well. It doesn't need to be wholesale changes and, and hero changes because you could be subscribing to the philosophy Brennan just talked about. Play what you know and what you've practiced and take the learnings you've had from... You learn a lot during these events. During one ProQuest, I feel like whenever I play any sort of mid to high level event that's when i learn the most you know you, you're playing these games you're playing these people who are also well practiced who have plans and you just like you play a game against someone who's never played like that before into you into the deck you're on you go wow i hadn't thought about that plan before i'm going to go away and think about how i can react to that and that could mean you know shifts in your deck list yeah um yeah kind of a kind of a diversion but i just want to there's something you said there where it's like uh you feel you're talking about how much you improve i think that time playing these sort of higher stakes tournaments is actually really important to sort of cultivating a sense of comfortability with while being in that scenario right and i've played seasons like this where i didn't need the pti i had the invite i had the card or the freaking mat but i kept playing because i wanted to put myself in those like you know tournament-esque or pro tour-esque scenarios as much as possible and play the best players like it is absolutely non-zero and a huge advantage if you're you're walking up to your first pro tour if you've played all these players before you know you know what to expect it's a it's a big deal so i want to go into you know hey you talked about switching cards right that's developing your sideboard <laughs> to an extent it could affect your main deck as well but it's important to sort of revisit your perceived metagame analysis in order to develop a sideboard that's prepared to handle what you think will likely show up i would say that each card you add in your sideboard comes at the cost of not adding a different card that might help you in other matchups right so when you're cutting spell void and null rune um yeah you might be helping your matchup against old him which is potentially the the most played deck but you might have lost like 80% edge against like the wizards or something like that. So you gotta, there's an opportunity cost, right? Your, your sideboard slots are definitely limited. One thing that I would say when it comes to your sideboard is to practice with it. <laughs> I would say make sure that the cards you've added for specific matchups are actually effective and worth it. Uh, for instance, if you're already 70-30 on a matchup, do you really need to add three additional cards to your sideboard slot to go up 75 to 25? Probably not. And I actually see people do that a lot, and I've done it many times before. I think that a sideboard is something that you can sort of theorize and develop, but it, you need to put it out in the wild and test it and put it out into practice uh, 
to see if it actually holds up because I find most of the time it actually doesn't. So playing plaque playing practice games into the expected metagame to see if you're missing any tech cards that could really help you. Super important. And like I said, I find I found that this proc- process in my experience has led to me uh, switching cards in my sideboard uh, pretty much 100% of the time. Yeah, if I had two sort of big learnings from this process, you know, of playing week-to-week ProQuests or sort of trying to grind out that invite, get to get to that ProQuest win, one of the things that can be really detrimental is like over-sideboarding is going away after so maybe you play your first week of pro quest and you take a hard loss which knocks you out of top eight contention to uh let's say it's deck x so it doesn't really matter what it is and you go away and, and all you're thinking about is that loss and then you overcorrect your sideboard for that you start to actually hurt your main core game plan and you talked about like moving from a 70 30 to a 75 25 if you want to give arbitrary numbers to stuff whatever but um what you might also be doing in that instance is actually taking away just what your deck does well, you know, or taking options from your your potential sideboard package that are really good into all the aggressive decks in the meta. All of a sudden, I'm like over sideboarding for slower control decks like Ultim, and I've I've taken away a big part of my core package against aggressive decks, which now makes my matchup to that just infinitely harder. There is this like syndrome of over sideboarding, I think, and you make a great point, Brendan. Like, get the reps and practice it. I would hesitate to make a lot of wholesale changes to things without practicing them i might change one or two things to tweak like ratios numbers the ability to see a particular sort of effect so maybe there's a particular effect i want to see and i have three ways to to, to have that in my deck like let's use you know why don't we use rhino as an example maybe i feel like i need more intimidate in my deck for control matchups and it's like okay well i'm gonna play three alpha rampage in my in my sort of quote-unquote sideboard now which i didn't last week because i want access to that but then also at the same time like what's coming out at the expense of that i think that's that's really important to i've definitely had that hurt me a lot sort of making oh. incorrect changes oh i've gotta do i have a story for this so on the eve of the first u.s national championship <laughs> zach bunn and i um revisit our earth briar deck which i think zach bunn is a little bit famous for kind of bro in his deck you know maybe a yellow whisper the oracle sneaks his way in there somehow um but me and Zach, we sat down the night before and we're like, we're going to pull out the Excel sheet. We're going to math this. We're going to do this the big boy way, right? And we get all of our ratios. We're doing all of our math. We're adjusting some cards here and there, adjusting some blues, adjusting like, uh, you know, attack actions versus not attack actions because it's a Runeblade deck. <laughs> we get to the tournament uh, on the national, the, fr- the round one of the like, you know, after the, after oh. the draft at, at nationals. We both come up to each other and I was like, dude, what the hell? Like, what abomination is in my freaking backpack right now? Because that felt like crap. We didn't practice it. We switched the deck. We did what made sense in theory from like from a math basis, from ratios, and it just didn't work out. And it was absolute garbage. Yeah, yep, it, it happens. There's theory is only leads you to th- theory is fantastic in flesh and blood it, it, cut, it corner cuts you it saves a lot of time and it gets you to points where you then you can start to even goldfish plus test and, and practice but uh you can quickly find that some of these golden ratios and things you think should be right in cards that in theory should be fantastic kind of suck in the way that the, the games play out because of not just what you do but also what your opponents do so yeah good good example the, the last thing uh the last kind of one i had was just the kind of analysis of it like i think when you don't get too focused on small parts of the meta you know like the kano example is, is a good one right it's like okay if you know your local meta has wizards in it and you can expect that then be prepared for it but if it's like okay i'm de- devoting four of my really important 15 potential sideboard slots or f- i like to look at it as an 84 of my 80 cards 
to a matchup that might be one in 50 players at the event is that is that the best use of your cards uh, maybe it is if you have free slots right or you think it's going to be more than one in 50 it's going to be more like five or ten and fifty you know five ten percent then that makes sense but i do think especially at progress i see people often over focus on certain matchups um to their detriment especially when they probably could just take five minutes sit down with that pen and paper and uh, work out a bit about what the meta is probably going to be yeah and finally exciting some logistics sleeve your deck in new sleeves print out multiple copies of your deck list and for god's sake write down your sideboard plan (laughs) people who don't do that are freaking psychopaths (laughs) just write it down it makes it so much easier um but yeah come prepared it it helps and the less you have to think outside of just actually playing the game um the better so we'll go to step three here which is the go ahead i want to ask i want to ask a question first of all i've never seen for a show damakai ever write down a sideboard plan he refuses to and I've seen him make multiple sideboarding errors because of it, but he'll never change. Uh, why why sleeve your deck in new sleeves and why print out multiple multiple copies of a deck list, Brendan? So print out multiple copies of a deck list so you don't, I don't know, sometimes uh, those things like you can, I don't know, you can lose them. I've had to give out two before. I can't remember why. Um, and I freaking, if there's anything I despise in this life, it's writing down with a pen and paper all the cards in my deck. I hate doing that. So I print out like 10 copies. Um, <laughs> and then you sleeve new, sleeve new sleeves. I mean, you should be doing that before every single tournament. It's just best practice. Um, I mean, obviously, you can check your current sleeve to make sure they're okay. But like, it's just, that's what I think. I feel like that's part of professionalism in card games is like, just make sure all of your stuff is good and ready to go and just go through this ritual. And then all you have to do on the, on the day of the tournament is just focus on actually playing the game. I think it's reasonable advice. I, I will usually use new sleeves. I will never print out two copies of a deck list though. But I think if you are prone to misplacing. Like <laughs> yeah. And if also actually, if you want to use that deck list again, I often, I often just like print it out and then I'll just like change it. Just like scribble it out and change it. <laughs> I got a manila folder and everything. Of course you do. <laughs> so step three, the tournament and how to win. So expect five plus rounds or the cut to top eight. But this is very this is based on attendance is probably variable by location for but for example where i'm located you would expect over five rounds every single time with the cut to top eight these tournaments can be extremely long the round the time amount uh, the time allocated to a class constructed round will be the same but that does not mean that five rounds at one store will be five rounds at another store some tournaments can go exceedingly long because of delays and just all kinds of things so just be prepared for the long haul some of these things mirrors ultimate mirrors (laughs) yeah or like you know somebody's like hey how about a how about a three-hour lunch break two rounds in you're like what (laughs) by the way we don't have bathrooms now (laughs) okay so let's like some play like you practice and understand your game plans try not to tilt off a loss um these tournaments are usually long so i think that you know one loss is usually not the end of the world maybe it's around one loss and there's like a smaller tournament you're fine yeah just get over it anyway (laughs) try not to tilt because i know from some of the pro quests here in texas they can be quite large and like you're in for the long haul and i've taken round one losses i took a freaking round one loss at the 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 pti event at scg and because i was freaking late so i just got an immediate loss and then went through to close out that tournament so yeah just don't let it tilt you and you can play from behind um and just went out anyway Uh, i would say this is particularly particularly important for ProQuest. I would say, look at what other people are playing and make note of this. Uh, make note of this and vote to help you pick your 
deck or cards in your deck, your sideboard for the next tournament. I think, like like we've talked about, the macro meta changes week by week, most likely, unless it's Starvo, based on the LSS meta breakdown articles, but also your local meta might favor something different from the norm. I have a few anecdotes here. So in Texas, if Prism is legal, expect a ridiculous amount of Prism, even if it's like the worst position deck in the game. Tons of people are going to be playing Prism. Um, and also, back in the Starvo days, back in Starvo ProQuest days, Starvo was one of the least played decks at the at like the Dallas ProQuest. Like, one of the least played decks. Everybody was complaining about it, and it was OP, but they all freaking brought Prism. They all brought Prism. They all brought Prism and Chain. That was it. Well, they wanted to feed it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, the making a note thing. It's it's relevant for ProQuest because you're going to play against the same players, like we talked about at the start. You know, people are going to travel within local radiuses. People are going to probably play the same sort of things. You can also like people call it scouting, whatever you want to call it, but just walk around and like look at what people are playing. We're in a new era of flesh and blood where when you sit down across from a hero, you don't necessarily know what strategy they're going to play into, and you also might be playing a deck that's susceptible to fatigue, for instance. So any just sort of like information you can can gather at an event that's 30 40 players whatever it is can be really huge for you if you're trying to win this kind of event and you know punch your ticket to the pro tour i i really recommend it like it 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 doesn't take much you you finish a round you grab a snack or drink out of your bag or whatever and just walk around the tables around you that you potentially could be playing against just just have a look at the games you know like what strategy is that katsu playing what what you know what is that ultim doing are they playing glacial footsteps and stuff or are they playing a lot more defense reactions like you can easily kind of have this information and it's just going to give you an understanding it might not change your cyborg plan into the matchup but it might change how you want to play and just what cards to expect during during the matchup and while it might only give you if you're trying to put numerical numbers on it you know a five ten percent edge maximum i think at this at a pro quest level where people are it's it's really cutthroat right like everyone wants to punch their ticket to the pt i think you take what the edges you can get obviously in the rules of the game yeah, point that out, I just please. like I like it. I like it for sort of understand because we talk about like you know Legend Story. They release these articles. They tell you what the meta kind of looks like around the world, dude. And I don't know if it's my region. It's probably everybody's region, but my region will sometimes behave so freaking atypically to, to the, that data that it's like almost useless to me. So I like to understand like what people are on. So it's like when I'm going to like revisit my deck, maybe tweak a few cards on my sideboard for the next week's tournament because I got I got dunked on by a freaking dash or something the tournament before. I'm like, oh, well, dash might be the best deck, but you know. 70% of these people are on Lexi for some reason, so I should probably be pre prepared for that. Um, so I just want to, Hayden, you know, Hayden accused me of not being a, a ProQuest hero, but um, <laughs> I didn't accuse you back, back in my day, there was a, there was the first Road to National season. I won five in a row. So just going to talk a little bit about like my approach, what we did, and why it worked. So I was playing Chain. <laughs> Probably one of the most overpowered decks ever, but I was very comfortable in the deck. I was, I was well, I was well practiced. I feel like we, like our testing team, had developed that deck. It, it was just that was my pet deck anyway. Um, a common strat into that chain deck was to fatigue it. People thought that that deck was uh, sort of weak against fatigue, and they would bring fatigue to target chain. But our chain deck was designed to beat it, and it was our best matchup. So it was a great scenario to be in. Um, 
public opinion was very split at the time with Chain being the quote-unquote best deck. Some people would say it was, but then everybody brought Prism anyway, even though the conversion was terrible. Um, and I would say out of ProQuest, uh, you're, I was not, you're not unlikely, we talked about this actually in the last week's Patreon pod, but out of ProQuest, you're not unlikely to play the same person uh, twice, once in Swiss, once in top eight. Um, and as a result, the information on what, what cards you should sideboard against them is really important actually in top eight. Uh, this happened to me at a local ProQuest, or local Road to Nationals, where I played a Chain in Swiss. I lost but then saw that he was playing like nine flock of the feather walkers and um you know i knew that he was going to be number one seed so he's going to put me going second and i could reasonably add a lot of command and conquerors in my deck more than i usually would because flock of the feather walkers on the play incentivizes you to arsenal but even after being on the play through subsequent turns that card is incentivizing you to play the five card hand play the arsenal just because of the way um flock of the feather War- Featherwalker works as like a combat chain mender where you reveal a card and then that goes in your arsenal. So my CNC stock went way up. So I put in three CNCs and ended up winning me the game. Um, and yeah, finally, Arsenal Pass probably sounds like a broken record at this point. Uh, but when it when it comes to playing these, these pro quests, you should most likely be prepared for a long day, sort out food, stay hydrated, and get plenty of sleep. The facilities at ProQuest can sometimes not be great, and the quality can vary pretty drastically from store to store, um, especially when it comes to food. So best to just sort it out before. And you know, my mantra is when I'm at a tournament like a ProQuest, the only thing I want to think about is playing the game, nothing else. All right. Yep. Good calls. I want to just round off because i know you're going to move through to a little bit about what to expect for proquest season three and talk a bit about the meta and how to start thinking about proquest already even though we're still you know six seven weeks out but i want to just share some of my kind of learnings from proquest season one and season two so proquest season one i think i played four or so proquests and then proquest season two i played two proquests and i took a lot of learnings away from proquest season two i think i played uh two proquests the first week and the second week the first week i showed up with a dash deck that I wanted to play because I didn't play it at PT1. I felt really confident about how strong it was. I didn't really think much about the meta. I didn't really think much about my sideboard choices. I just chose the deck that I thought was powerful. And I was like, I think I can do well with this. Ended up doing not not very well. And I, one of the kind of things for me was like, I think I was out by like round three or something, but I played the rest of the Swiss rounds out. And I think that's important if you're wanting to... Um, if you want to play at this level and get the most experience possible, I think getting involved and, and continuing to play these events is to play each of the rounds is really important. You can get a lot from it. You might not be live for top eight, but you are going to play rounds against competitive players who want to be doing the same thing that you're doing, playing in these pro quests. You're going to get exposure to you're already at the event. Why not play out, you know, and learn more about the deck list you're playing, learn more about the matchups against people who are playing it differently to maybe how people in your testing group or your friends play it. I think that's, that's really important. So that's something that I definitely like to do even if I'm out, just, just play. And I think the other thing, so to like the second week of the ProQuest season, one of the things I did is a little bit of the advice we talked about earlier. I sat down and tried to work out based on week one what sort of decks I thought people were going to play. And I, I thought that there was kind of this uh, this gap in the meta for a bit more of an aggressive sort of Runeblade deck. I ended up playing Little Viserai. And I think you can sort of pinpoint a bit more about the metagame, you know, like you're saying, local metagame. And you can take a deck that's not necessarily the known or the thing that people are expecting if you have an idea of how you're going to play into all these matchups. So I think there's a lot of learnings you can take across week one, week two. But yeah, big big takeaways from me over this, the last few ProQuest seasons have been like, just play out your games, learn as much as possible, try and get prepared for the next week and be really focused on why you're making changes or why you're choosing a deck. Because um, you want to you want to win the event. Like top eight in the event is a great start. But if you're choosing a deck to 
you know, top eight. You you want to have every sort of little edge possible and understand what you're probably going to play against, not just in Swiss, but in top eight as well. So it's like, you know, maybe maybe Ultim is going to be the most played deck, but like maybe you know that the three or four best players in your meta are playing Icelander. Like I'm more interested in that situation if I want to win the ProQuest to be really prepared for Icelander, even over and above Ultim, even if double the amount of people are going to play it. Yes, I need to be able to beat those Ultims to get through to top eight, but I definitely need to be able to beat those Icelanders to win the event. Yeah, definitely. All right, and on to our addendum section. Uh, tips for the current class constructed meta um, for the upcoming ProQuest season. So Hayden, I have, a, I have a few questions for you. Just hang with me while I ask them. Uh, what are your meta expectations, your thoughts on the quote-unquote best deck, and your personal strategy for this upcoming ProQuest season? What, you're good to go? Yep, good to go. So I, I think um, I said at the top of the show, it's a bit maybe a bit early to tell right now in terms of meta expectations of where we're going to land. Uh, but I think we're already starting to see a few things. You know, I expect Dash to be around. I think at the moment people are, are cool on some of the, what have been the best decks in the format traditionally. So Icelander, Fi. Icelander people are talking about still being the best deck. I'm seeing that discourse around people saying, you know, Icelander's still the de- best deck. But Fi is something I'm not seeing people talk about. Fi hasn't changed much. It's still really powerful. And going into the World Championship, Brendan, like the, the debate was around best deck but from my from what i'd seen people thought that fire was still the default oh, yeah. best deck I, I don't think that's that's changed right so um that's kind of my media expectations right now is that we're going to see people yes play the newness play the exciting sort of things you'll see a few people play arachne but once people get into some serious testing and people who want to win a progress will do at least some sort of amount of testing into what they think of the better decks i think you'll see people come back to a bit more icelander but more fire a bit more ultima briar um, I think it's going to be pretty diverse in the first couple of weeks unless we see a bit more sort of community discourse come closer together about what these best decks actually look like. So maybe it's like, you know, Fire and Iceland are actually just too good for Dash and that becomes a sort of sentiment two weeks out from the event. Not saying that's true, but just saying that could become a sentiment. So I would say like, you know, keep finger on the pulse. I think we'll, we'll definitely see some some discourse and sentiment. But at local events, you tend to get meta breakers. And like you were saying, Brendan, the, the meta might not look like what you expect it to globally. So... Uh, I think we'll we'll see some some changes, and I think it's important probably to know a bit about what your local meta's looking to do. Those will start to evolve. Um, my thoughts on best deck, I think it's interesting. I think Dash is really, really powerful. I've been playing a bit of Dash recently. I think Hanabi Blaster is a, a crazy good card. Um, I don't think Fatigue is really an issue for you anymore with Hanabi Blaster. I think with those and being able to set up items, it's really powerful. What is more scary is Active Disruption. Things like Lexi potentially, uh, even Icelander, depending on what cards you can fit into your 80 cards, still can be a tough prospect. Uh, and just because also the Hanabi Buster plan isn't particularly good against Icelander, I don't think. Um, and then Fi, I think Fi is just really, really good still. So those are probably the, the top three decks that I'd have my eye on heading into the ProQuest season. Yeah, I'd honestly be willing to gamble that at most ProQuest in the United States, I think there's going to be an absolute dump truck load of <laughs> of uh of dash at the first pro quest tournament to be honest like a sort of fresh hyper aggressive deck that's pretty straightforward that uh now kind of beats fatigue with just this like one weapon slot upgrade seems like where you want to be it's like okay the thing i'm worried about if i'm playing dash potentially right is things like ice lexi and icelander um decks that i don't think are played on the regional level very much so like i think I, I think there's a very strong argument to be playing dash in the in the first pro quest um and an even better argument to try and 
counter it if you have a deck that's reasonably well-rounded into the rest of the meta. Yeah, I would just say don't forget about, like I said, Icelander or Fire. I think people are still going to shove those decks. The one thing I will counter on that is I don't think Dash is an easy deck to play. I think it's probably one of the hardest decks to play in what this meta is shaping up to look like. I think I don't, yeah, for me, it's not particularly easy to play. I think there's a lot of different avenues you can go down. I think building the deck itself is really difficult. Like what your main deck plan looks like versus potential plans for like things like Dromai, things like Icelander. Do you have a pistol plan in the sideboard? Do you have access to defense reactions or proactive ultim decks? Like there's so many different ways to play it. And playing around fatigue with Hanabi Blaster, I wouldn't say it's easy. I think you've got a fantastic tool to do it now in the form of Hanabi Blaster, but I don't think it's it's necessarily straightforward. And I actually think there's quite a reasonable amount of decisions around how you use your cards like Spark of Genius, how you set up your counters and use them on Hanabi Blaster, how you utilize maximum velocity turns, how you utilize and get your items into play. I actually think there's there's a, quite a lot of play to the deck, and I actually think it's one of the, the harder decks in the format to play, which is really interesting. So, um, yeah. Sweet. Well, that wraps up episode 86 of Arsenal Pass, which was recorded live on Twitter Spaces. It will not be recorded uh, for future listening on Twitter Spaces, we will upload it to YouTube and all podcast platforms like usual on Thursday. So if you're listening to this and you didn't hear it live, that's probably where you're getting it from. But just to let you know, we might do this again in the future. We'll look at the data, look at what people say, if it's good, and the technical difficulties aren't too bad, we'll go ahead and do it again. Um, just want to say, let us know your thoughts. If you're listening on YouTube, let us know your thoughts in the comment below, right? Like, I'm interested to hear what you are planning to play for the upcoming ProQuest season. What do you think is the best deck? How has Dynasty affected the meta? Is the meta maybe going to look kind of the same way it did back in Worlds? Or are there some new dark horses that are going to come into their own and potentially dominate um, this new season of Classic Constructed? Uh, while you're down there, you know, of course, headbutt that like and smack that subscribe for us. It does help us a lot. Uh, I just want to say, uh, yeah, closing as well. The awesome marathon, uh, February 19th, uh, Fab Fitness Challenge. Uh, would love to have you out there. It's going to be a great time. We're all going to meet up. Uh, it's an awesome event. The team name, if you do decide to sign up, is Arsenal Pass. No surprise there. And if you're not interested in running a marathon, which probably applies to most people, there's also a half marathon and 5K available. So just get out there, come hang out with all of us. And of course, more news to come on that end. But just want to give everybody a heads up because these things do take a long time to train for. So if you plan on coming, get out there and be prepared. Hayden, do you have any upcoming videos or announcements yeah we're um, gonna open up to years. for those in the uh live we are gonna open up the spaces in a second for a, for a q a but i do just want to before we uh close out yeah we've got uh, these lss babtcg.com youtube videos are up the gameplays are done for the blitz gameplay series and go check those out please go and you know check them out for us help us with the, <laughs> the videos we've put up there show lss that that you know these things are, are wanted um i think there's some yeah it's great to have gameplay i think and yeah, other than that, I mean, we're both obviously on, on Twitter at BrendanAPG and Fian underscore Dale, and uh, we will have some more Flesh and Blood content up on the YouTube page over this sort of downtime period. We have more time to make content, which is great. So December, January in particular, look out for some more videos. But with that, Brendan, we're going to sign up for the pod and then throw over to the Twitter Q&A, I think. Yep. See you all next week. Our Q&A time.